1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Red Box podcast. This is Jenny Kleeman sitting in for Matt Chorley. Today, we're looking back at Afghanistan and what's changed for people four months on from the evacuation. But first, as ever on a Tuesday, it's Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein, and David Aronovich – And we talked about everything from wine and cheese to the Lib Dems.
3: Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive,
2: it's alive, it's alive!
3: Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio...
2: I hope that you two are used to being introduced that way now, because uh, I'm I'm never going to get used to it. But it is, of course, uh, Daniel (laughs) Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Uh, Good morning to both of you. Good
3: morning. Good morning.
2: So uh, let's begin with big story of the weekend. It was bubbling under on Sunday. Uh, Baker Dorries WhatsApp expulsion. Uh, Nadine Doris expelled from the WhatsApp group. As in, um, I want you to let me know what were the pre-social media equivalents uh, when there were problems like this in the past in the time of disraeli what was the disraeli equivalent of getting thrown out of a a whatsapp group uh danny well
1: um it's very interesting that we should be on times radio discussing this uh before disraeli right in the time of uh Pitt and Addington, um, people were paying the Times to attack uh, each other, (laughs) and um, you could pay the Times a suppression fee, by the way, Uh, so if the Times would come to you with a rumour, and if you uh, wanted to keep the rumour out the paper, you could pay the Times, and Times wouldn't print it. I always give this as an example when people say the paper isn't quite what it used to be. That is certainly (laughs) true. Um, So, although it's the case that now people have these whatsapps and twitter rows and everything people have always had this sort of uh, row israeli actually you mentioned he had several uh, newspaper ventures which he uh, started in order to maintain his uh, political arguments uh, and have the editorial on his side so there've always been this kind of uh, this kind of uh, att- attacks on each other in political parties involving whatever is the current kind of media um
2: David, was it, is it just simply uh, easier to take a screen grab of nowadays?
3: <laughs> well, I, I was amused when <clears throat> I heard somebody talking. Um, I, th- I think it was a comedian saying, can you imagine Churchill doing this to do? chamberlain and so on and it does kind of make you think if if there had been i don't know a kind of anti-appeasement tory backbench group in the 1930s or something like that and somebody had come on it to defend uh ball stanley baldwin or later neville chamberlain and then all of a sudden winston Churchill one of the acolytes had suddenly said oh i've had enough of this and it just says winston churchill deleted i don't know kind of uh, julian amory or who or whoever it was, et cetera, um, whether, you could, whether you could imagine it. But but, Dan is, but Dan is absolutely right. We've always had equivalents of politicians being cross with it. It's just you didn't really see it in the past. It wasn't... Uh, um, I, I think the, the, the stories you're Danny's talking about would have been quite opaque and quite possibly would have been written by somebody called Junius or Caius or something like that. Some, kind some of these people, in. I still
1: don't know who they are, actually, even all this time later. I suppose, David, the equivalent might be diaries. Uh, but these didn't come out often i mean chips shannon's diaries are still uh, coming out now um uh, giving us the lowdown on what all the appeasers were saying about the anti-appeasers And it's a bit late now isn't it really i mean <laughs> yeah doc <Dr>. cooper's <laughs> diaries too so it is a bit late yes uh,
3: that's right i think after they've died it's you, i think you can honestly say that the political immediate political utility is diminished even if the fascination is still there
2: Uh, And, of course, we know that Nadine Doris was chucked out of the WhatsApp uh, because she was defending Boris Johnson in light of Lord Frost's resignation. Uh, Let's have a little chat about that. Where does Lord Frost derive his his sudden political philosophy from, do you think, Daniel?
1: I I don't know. It's an interesting question. It's more David's... um, that David was more puzzled about this than I was. I mean, I know why... uh, There are lots of people who say David Frost was always sort of quite pro-Europe uh or pro-European the Union has sort of became a strong anti uh, Eurosceptic afterwards but I've never found that uh, as con- as sort of um important as other people do so a lot of people for example this weekend were saying Liz Truss has taken this job and they were retweeting the fact that she was a Remainer but I don't regard that as being inconsistent once you've uh, it isn't even inconsistent by the way to believe as she does that you should have quite a hard Brexit you can believe that to be uh consistent with thinking that brexit isn't a very good <laughs> idea but that once we decided to leave we ought to do that so um I, i've never had such a problem with the ideological consistency of these people i mean obviously i have some problem with the basic intelligence of the ideas
3: um take- it was it, it was
1: not yeah it
3: wasn't so much that for me um uh dan and jenny it was it was this uh, in his resignation which he said was had to be brought forward a little bit because the story got into it into the mail and what he said effectively was not i'm going because i can't do the job i was asked to do by you anymore and without which if i hadn't agreed to do it i wouldn't have been in your government etc and i wouldn't even have been ennobled to the house of lords by you because that's what I was brought in to do. No, I'm resigning because I disagree with all these other big philosophical questions. I think that the Conservative Party should be a low, small government, low tax party. I'm resigning because of that. I think that the government uh, possibly is going too far down the road of net zero mm. on climate change, and I don't agree with that. And I thought, well, who are you to agree or not to agree or to resign on that? But you only brought in because of your kind of belated conversion to the cause of hard Brexit. And, I mean, And he's okay, not elected. He's not elected. He's not elected at all. So now he hangs around the House of Lords. Sorry, Danny, unlike you, because you're <laughs> hanging around the House of Lords. <laughs> no. He's him. He hangs around the House of Lords telling us all his big opinions about the big questions of the day, and nobody elected him to
1: do it. And well, it that's, really that's, drives me nuts, actually. That's fair. Uh, uh, fair and by the way, I you know I, I certainly you know wouldn't disagree with that your basic premise either. But uh, the truth is actually his resignation didn't cause the same. Uh, impact as it would have done if he'd been elected I was quite interested by that despite the fact that he's probably more central to Boris Johnson's government than most other ministers um, and therefore his resignation was actually a very big internal deal Um, but because he wasn't elected I think not unreasonably he didn't cause the same uh, you know I think it would have caused a bigger ruction if um just to give you an example, Grant Shapps had resigned, not impossible given his position on uh, on restrictions, uh, even though Grant Shapps is nowhere near as central to the uh, government and to Downing Street as uh, David Frost. So I do think there, you know, I think actually I wouldn't quite agree, David. I think there was a reflection in the impact that it made on members of parliament and on and in the impact that it made in the media of david frost having not been an uh, you know it it was more treated as the resignation of an of of an official as than it was the resignation of a uh, of a of of a cabinet minister and by the way there may be a question over whether or not such a person should be in the cabinet Mm -hmm. lots of people believe that unelected people should be in the cabinet um whether there should be a house of laws is a different matter but lots of people think that's a perfectly reasonable democratic model um but uh if you'd been an official um, which he was for a long time, his resignation would have had just the same import. But the
2: timing of this, of, of the leaking of, of the news of this resignation is very interesting. I mean, we, we had someone on Times Radio Breakfast at the weekend who said that last week was like a hellish advent calendar for Boris Johnson, that behind every, <laughs> every window, uh, another horrific, uh, horrific uh, calamity uh, for him to deal with. This was, this was time to hurt, wasn't it, David?
3: Well, I—I I, I, firstly, um, uh, just to kind of reiterate the point, who the hell does Lord Frost think he is, is my kind of my general sort of a point. There's a kind of level of incredible pomposity which is built up to think that actually his opinions on these things should, should matter in the way he suggests and so on. Um, when it comes to the timing, it didn't look good, did it? I mean, I'm not privy to the kind of gossip about why people uh time the things in the, uh, in the way they do or who exactly leaked the story to who with what kind of intention it said that he it was been agreed that he should go round about now and that the sudden uh, appearance of the story you have to ask in that case who appeared the story because if it was him then in that case it was indeed time to really badly hit uh, boris johnson and would indicate some degree of animosity if it wasn't him
1: then maybe it doesn't um, and danny may have a, a view of that that I don't know whether it was him it didn't look from the correspondence to me like it was but it'll have been allies of him people mm-hmm. who know him people who knew what his intentions were um, and what Exactly how coordinated it is is secondary. There is now a strong narrative about the prime minister, um, and every story fits with that. It brings forward the stories that um, that fit with it that haven't quite happened yet. It amplifies the stories that might otherwise be ignored. Um, you know, his decision to move on wouldn't necessarily have been as important uh, in other circumstances, and so uh, it sort of amplifies the story that Boris Johnson's in trouble.
2: Uh, one of the troubles for Boris Johnson, of course, the North Shropshire by-election, which uh, the Liberal Democrats won with a majority of nearly 6,000 uh, on uh, Friday. And they came out with another one of their kind of classic stunts. It wasn't this time bursting through a blue ball, blue wall. It was a giant blue balloon. I think that was meant to be Boris's bubble uh, being burst. What did you make of it, David?
3: Well, the first thing I have to say is Um, There's a lot about the Liberal Democrats which I could kind of cleave unto uh, politically occasionally, but they always find a way of irritating the living daylights out of me. They are easily one of the most irritating parties on the face of, uh, of God's earth. I think it's a kind of the, the terrible mixture of extreme piety and extreme cynicism occasionally about the way in which they, are, uh, uh, they go about things. And the thing that irritated me was not even so much their kind of stunt. People do all kinds of stunts and they're always, as far as I'm concerned, I always hate them, but presumably they, they do them for a reason. It was their opposition to vaccine passports that really got me last week because they voted with the Tory rebels against Uh, uh, that bit of vaccine passports they called them covid id cards because that was the way they were branding them and then stated that they're that uh, this uh, with total clarity that the evidence was that they created a sense of false security and i asked one of the leading lib dems on twitter to give me the evidence that they had for that contention, and the answer actually turned out they don't have any evidence for that contention. Yet they made it. Now I think that's I think that's kind of pretty cynical. But obviously, it was something they could say to the voters of North Shropshire uh, and to others, which is, oh, we're not in favour of all these kind of you know, Dan- this, this particular measure. We're in favour of the others. And I just. I just found it so typical of the way in which they go about things, uh, unfortunately. And I would like them to be better, um, is what I think about but, it. And but, again, David, don't they have to vote Danny against... Don't they have to vote against... Danny worked with uh-huh. them but when we... he was at the Social Democratic Party. So I was to, trying to tease him into being cross about them. Well, sorry, Jenny, I interrupted No, you. I was just
2: going to say that don't they have to vote against vaccine passports because they're the Liberal Democrats. They're always going to vote against measures like this. What do you make of
1: mm-hmm. it, Danny? That's that. That's not necessarily true. So, funnily enough, the, the problem, David, is you're 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 possibly right. I did, you know, work with the liberals and didn't always get on uh, so well with that party. But my base rate of crossness is lower than yours. Is the problem? Um, and um, as we as we've discussed uh, before, so you know, my view is that I do sometimes find people who say things that I don't agree with quite annoying, um, and usually then find the way that they say the things that I don't agree with quite annoying as well. Um, that, But that may just be me rather than them. Uh, and I, I guess with the Liberal Democrats, I always keep to this, in the end um, they're, at least, they're sort of a moderate political party that is trying to you know a group of kind of quite well-meaning thing people who want a, a parliamentary liberal democracy um and um i find it terribly hard to get that across with them now listen I, I don't agree with their position on vaccine passports um i happen to think the whole existence of the party is a bit of a waste of time considering we have a, the labour party and they're mostly taking votes away from the party that they intend to be in government with um, and um I can't really understand the point of what they're doing, Uh, but uh, I I, I don't find it in myself to get cross. And to take an example, you know, the Conservatives, Boris Johnson ran through a wall of bricks with Brexit um, written on it. And it was actually quite an effective political stunt. uh, And uh, I can't see why I should find the ball more annoying.
3: Oh, do you know what, Danny? I
1: sometimes feel in
3: our conversations that it's a real shame for the Church of England that you're Jewish. Because if, the, <laughs> if you were in Church of England, you would be a shoe in for the Archbishop of Canterbury. I swear it.
2: Um- <laughs> I want to talk about uh, when is a party not a party, the Downing Street Wine and Cheese Party. Uh, Is it a meeting if they're having wine and cheese, if there are nobody, if there's nobody taking notes, if there's no laptops, if there is a woman holding a newborn baby there? Is it a work meeting?
1: Well, I think if they hadn't done any of the other parties, uh, any of the other clear rule breaking people might have taken a more generous view to what this clearly was which was a load of people relaxing between their work and the meetings um, and uh chatting with each other that's clearly what it was um and they wouldn't have necessarily been keen to badge it as um you know rule breaking or a but in the light of what has happened not unreasonably, people are badging it like that. I certainly am. I find it extraordinary given, the, uh, given what we'd already, had already happened to Neil Ferguson, what was about to happen to uh, Dominic Cummings, what happened to uh, Matt Hancock, that the, these apparently sophisticated political operatives didn't think for a second that to hold a press conference telling people to socially distance and then go to the Downing Street garden and not do that was uh, whatever they decided it was um, and what, however they badge it um, was you know foolish uh, politically and also wrong um, and um, you know having said all that personally at I don't think it was a party. It was somewhere halfway between, um, you know, a social gathering and a work gathering. That's mm. the truth of it. And we all know exactly what it was. We can see, we all know, if we find a word to describe it, these are people who'd had a press conference, they were working yeah. and they're chatting a combination of <laughs> kind of cooler gossip and work. But then they went right? on, on to have this
2: advertising campaign where they had people with on ventilators saying, you know, look her in the eyes completely and say you never bent, right? the, bent the rules. I mean, why? I mean, what was going on? Complete,
1: it's completely outrageous, and I can't believe they couldn't think of it i'm just i'm just trying to describe the event so that we're all clear what it was i think it's i don't think downing street can can really object to people calling it a party
2: david and, you
1: know, in a moral
3: sense that's half, half, a word. Half, final word from half, you half, david half, half a glass of lager on the table that's in between meetings. Two bottles of red wine. All oh that's coming pretty close to probably what I love is the idea <laughs> that there was somebody with a camera up in number eleven taking photographs. Yes, of some,
2: that is the real story. <laughs> that
3: that waits a year and a half to be published. I mean, that's a novel right there. That's a bit of a thriller right there. I want to know who did it and how it happened, or you know, not necessarily names, but just how that took place, and then I want to see it written up.
2: That was Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Up next, Afghanistan. Now it's time for this. No one could forget the images of the Taliban taking over Kabul in August this year and the mass evacuations of civilians which followed nearly four months on from the end of that evacuation. And life for those in Afghanistan looks very different to this time last year. But what about those who were there? Today, we're going to look back on what it was like on the ground when the Taliban swept in. In a moment, we'll hear from the journalists Lynn O'Donnell and Stuart Ramsey. But first, I caught up with Shukriya Barakzai, uh, the former Afghan MP, and asked her what life was like in Afghanistan a year ago today.
4: Last year, December, this time I was been thinking about the great year of 2021 because we had a great hope for the peace process to bring stability for Afghanistan. And of course, I had a great dream because uh, to be seen and to be witnessed the end of pandemic, the COVID-19 catastrophe to be get ended and lots of other more further plan for 2021. It was a different life. I was in a different city. In, with different capacity, um, a different person, I could say.
2: When did you feel that that things were changing in Afghanistan?
4: Um, I don't know. For some reason, from the very beginning, when they announced uh, when the United States of America signed an agreement with Taliban in Doha, in that uh, was twenty nine February uh, twenty twenty. That was that was the time which is I thought something is going wrong, because how possible for an official government to go and sign a kind of agreement with the group, which is uh, they were being committed for a large number of terrorist activity. And they was and they are in the list of um, uh, sanctions by United Nations and other countries. Uh, Meanwhile, when the wrong policies from the government of Afghanistan also has been established, um, they they start with a very weak um, team for negotiation, and they move on with a different type of um, messages with a bad ego uh, where cannot match the ideas of the Afghans so all all those elements made afghanistan to be in a different way i was the only i was the only one was not been very optimistic about the peace process but still i try to encourage myself and give the hope that everything will be all right i am the only wrong person yeah, among other politicians because the rest of politician was been extremely supporting that process mm. and i was the always say I wish it could be like that but according to my knowledge and experience it wouldn't be like a a great and happy ending at the end of that Um, but it by one word uh, you ask about the last December last December at least we had a hope women were in the offices last December girls walls in the office, in, in the schools and universities. Last office in December was not such a discrimination and especially sectarian discrimination as we are witnessing today. Last December, Afghanistan had the government to be responsible for all those questions internally and internationally, which is what's been addressed to the government of Afghanistan and to the people of Afghanistan. Last December, people of Afghanistan had great freedom under the name of freedom of expression, equality, and pluralism, different type of uh, political opinion was being raised by a different groups. So, uh, last December, Afghanistan was one of the unique countries in being a bridge between South Asia and Central Asia, which is none of our neighbors was enjoyed democracy an entire of their life as much as Afghanistan. The
2: speed of the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban took everybody by surprise. What was it like for you on the 15th of August? Did it seem like a a
4: normal day to you? Well, I started as a normal day because there was a great uh, messages comes up uh, that Taliban will not enter to, they may not attack in Kabul, but uh, there will be a peace deal. So which kind of peace deal? I I believe we had a strong, great reserve number of army, which is they were being well equipped. Will educate with a great moral, they will stand, and the Taliban are not the one to to confront them easily. Um, but um, that normal day ended with a with a very bad nightmare, where I was on my normal trip to for a medical treatment and checkup, which is suddenly things changed. When I entered the airport, it was Ashraf Ghani's government. Uh, where border police, everyone was, and everything was in room. You know, even the PCR test was been necessary before travel. You have to give the PCR test. But uh, when I came out, uh, it, was, it was a nightmare. It was the Taliban, like after 36 hours, when I get into the airport, I came out with a lot of bad memories, with a lot of shocks, with a lot of traumas. Um, with a a very disappointing, with a very feeling of being betrayed by our friends, by our government, and somehow by our soldiers. You say you feel
2: betrayed. Do you feel that the British government made promises to Afghan people that we couldn't keep?
4: Um, It's hard for anyone in British to understand. Uh, For any Briton, it would be very difficult to understand which shoes we've been wearing in 20 years. Being allies, uh, being a great partner, seeking for the uh, shared values among us in Western countries, including British. But at the end, opening your eyes and you're alone. And there's nobody there to say we had shared values or been a great partner. We work together, we try to build together Afghanistan and peace and security in the globe. Um, th- that is, I think, not only my feeling. It's probably every single Afghans that they work very close with the Western countries for the very democratic values, with a great hope for the brighter future. And we stand for some principles, I feel maybe the same, because th- that is the most bad feeling ever I had.
2: And. What are you doing with your life now, now that you are no longer an MP, you're no longer in Afghanistan? What is life like for you now?
4: Uh, No matter if I'm MP or not, I'm ambassador or not, I will be human rights and women's rights activist. I will try to play my role in Afghanistan politics. I will try to work and uh, work. No, it's, it's, it's too hard because I have to, I uh, trained myself first, working in a different country under different rules, a you know, different perspective. Um, as a woman with the age of 50, I have to start back everything from scratch. When it comes to not the values, I still believe the great values I had, and I will keep, um, and I will try to work for that. But when it comes to work, I should start from scratch. And that shift wouldn't be easy for me or for anyone which has uh, been through lots of, lots of challenges. And at the end, seeing it's a new beginning with with a great question mark where it will lead us and how it will be. Although I'm to the people of Britain and their government, they opened their heart to us, but um, it is a great challenge for us, for people like me in particular. And
2: You're you're in touch with people who are still in Afghanistan. What
4: do they need now? Um, Humanitarian crisis. Like the first immediate thing is right now to reach them by all means to help them. Um, uh, Food crisis, um, lack of medication is there. Um, uh, Lack of uh, safety is there. And uh, most of them are facing um, life threat and their life in danger. And I think two things should go parallel the evacuation process, or probably three evacuation, (laughs) reaching by humanitarian aids to the people of Afghanistan, and um, by political pressure, starting a new. Chapter for Afghanistan that to hold Taliban to be accountable for their action does that mean it. talking
2: to the Taliban though you say we should use all means should we be talking to the Taliban and working with them
4: certain uh, label if we like them or not, they are elephant in the room. We cannot deny unfortunately, so this is important and very, very important to hold the Taliban to be accountable for their action, and this is definitely need and require talks, but not not legitimacy, not to be recognized. I'm not talking to recognition for the Taliban. I'm saying to be engaged and hold them accountable and to be talked with them. Yeah.
2: That was Shukriya Barakzai, the former Afghan MP. We are looking back at the fall of Afghanistan, four months on. I'm joined now by Lynn O'Donnell, a journalist and part of the War Studies Department at King's College London, and by Stuart Ramsey from Sky News. Good morning to you both. Hi, Jim. Good morning. Lynn, if I could begin with you, uh, when did it become clear to you that the Taliban was taking over?
0: Uh, well, I think what Shukri has said about the Trump-Taliban deal that was signed on the 29th of February last year was really um, uh, the that really sealed it for me. He essentially handed victory to the Taliban. Um, I went back to Afghanistan in May this year, and I spent the last three months of the war fighting. I, I went to um, uh, covering covering the end of the war. I went to a lot of places across across the country, reported from front lines in various places. And it was really very clear that the Taliban had a very well thought out strategy and that they were acquitting it and taking over in a very stealthy and um, strategic manner. Mm. And that um, the uh, onslaught was going to lead to an inevitable takeover. I think really anyone um, who didn't understand that just wasn't paying attention. And yet when the takeover
2: happened, it felt Unexpected. Nobody expected it really to happen quite so soon, did they, Lynn?
0: Well, maybe not um, quite so soon, but there were certainly evacuation efforts. Um, going on for months. The Americans started their evacuation of personnel from their embassy um, uh, in May, June. Um, American um, visa and passport holders who were Afghan nationals were also being evacuated for a couple of months before the August 15 fall. The French did it very methodically. The Germans did it very methodically. Um, The Brits didn't do it very well. It was almost like it came as a surprise, and we know um, that there was a lot of... Um, uh, delusion and and denial going on at the upper echelons of the MOD and the FCDO in London. Um, But yeah, the writing was on the wall very early, and there really aren't any excuses for saying we didn't think it was going to happen. That it happened on August 15, okay, maybe the the date was a surprise, but it was only ever going to be a matter of weeks anyway. Is that something you'd agree with, Stuart, that writing was on the wall?
5: Yes, I mean, we were watching cities falling and we were seeing um, the military literally just handing over their positions. And I think that was one of the things that struck me. It made me write uh, to my bosses uh, saying that we needed to go earlier than we were previously planned. Remember, everyone was preparing for 9-11 anniversary. So a lot of the news organisations were thinking about that. But it was quite clear that it was moving much more quickly and that any type of um, evacuation effort was going to come under pressure as they started falling. And I think, for, as I say, the, for the Taliban, their masterstroke in many ways was telling, was surrounding police stations and um, army barracks and telling the police, for example, that if they left or if they handed over their weapons, they could leave. Um, many had held on because they thought they'd be killed, of course, uh, and, and some were, of course. But um, by doing that and uh, letting these these guys go back to their homes, then the momentum just got going uh, and quicker and quicker. And of course, the evacuation effort was predicated on the fact that Kabul wouldn't fall itself, that it would hold perhaps to the end of the year Mm. Um, but obviously as soon as the the military and the police had left their posts it was inevitable it was just a matter of which of the days they were going to come in because we could see them coming we were getting the reports uh, that they were literally down the road and and we were only a few miles away from them so it was by that stage absolutely inevitable.
2: And both of you would have been faced with a decision then at that point on the 15th of August August. and and a difficult one, because if you're a a journalist that's used to operating in hostile environments, you want to be where the action is. But then you had to decide whether or or not you should stay or or go. Stuart, were you torn?
5: We did want to stay. We weren't. I mean, actually, the decision was made, <laughs> was in many ways made for us because uh, the takeover was so fast right at the end. So if you had any sort of dithering, it was already uh, too late. Uh, people were leaving when it was very difficult to get onto flights by that stage. We thought about it. But actually, to be honest, I've been covering Afghanistan since uh, since nine eleven, 11 And um, it, it felt that and I've met the Taliban on a number of occasions we, we decided to take the, take the view that we would stay uh, whatever. Um, and, 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 and yes, it was a bit worrying for me and the rest of my team and colleagues and many of whom I know very well. But it was sort of that is what we are paid to do. And as, as dangerous it might be, that is what we do. And so, yes, it was it wasn't much of a, a discussion. It was just a sort of like, OK, this is, could be very unpleasant, but we've sort of got no choice. We're here now.
2: And Lynn, how was it for you? Did you did you hesitate over the decision of whether to stay or leave?
0: No, Jenny, um, I was in Herat, the um, western city, um, with my friend and colleague, um, the Afghan Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, Masood Hosseini. We went there in the first week of August and we had planned to go for two days. We were trapped in the city for five days. We watched the Taliban entering the city. We saw um, militia who were working with the um, secrets of the intelligence service um, military guys um, beating uh, Taliban to death. Uh, we saw people take to their rooftops and call Allahu Akbar, trying to retake and reclaim their religion that the Taliban fought in the name of. and. Um, uh, Masood had a visa for the Netherlands as his Plan B, and we sat in our hotel, watching through big um, uh, windows overlooking the city, watching it all fall apart. And I said to him, "You know, it's once Herat is gone, Kabul is only days behind. You have to make a decision." So we went back to Kabul, and we, um, I changed my ticket. To the same day that um, Masoud did, which had to be two weeks before his Dutch visa expired, and it happened to be August the fifteenth. Mm. And so we went back. Um, uh, so so anyway, we went we went to the Turkish Airlines office and and bought a, and organized our tickets. A couple of days later, Masoud went back there um, with a friend of his who also needed to get out, and there were a thousand people. Cramming the airline ticket office. And so we knew and very, very many people knew that it was all coming to an end. But we were coincidentally, as it turned out, our timing was perfect because Masud has a, um, a target on his back. The Taliban told me they'd put a target on my back. We were high-value targets. And every day when I was working with uh, Massoud, I got into the passenger side of his car and saw the bullet holes from the last time he'd been ambushed uh, in Kabul. And so we knew that we were in a lot of danger if we stayed. And we were on the last commercial flight to lift off wheels up at 10 past nine on the morning of the 15th of August. So you were very lucky, Lynn. But I think we were. But does, but does there is there a
2: feeling of guilt that comes with that luck? Because there are a lot of people who weren't as fortunate.
0: Um, I don't think that I need to feel guilty I feel very concerned I feel um, I have hundreds and hundreds of people contacting me all the time every day my inboxes fill up can you please help us get out Um, and and there are a lot of people who are in very grave danger who are being hunted down people are being killed there are bodies being hung from trees children go out in the morning and see headless bodies in the streets Afghanistan under the Taliban has become a dystopian horror Mm. um, for the people who are still there beyond our imagining. Um, Do I feel guilty? No, I don't. I think the guilt should lie with um, the Foreign Office, the the people whose job it is to uh, issue visas, um, the people who told uh, Afghans for 20 years, uh, the British government, all the NATO governments, the United States, we will never abandon you, and then they did. That's where the guilt lies. Not with me. I'm a correspondent. Mm-hmm. I'm a reporter. I did my job. I mean, Stuart, are, are you hearing that
2: from people in Afghanistan? We, we heard from Shukriya uh, Barakzai just before where she was talking about that sense of betrayal. That we, we made a lot of promises. In the UK, we made a lot of promises. People built their lives and got an education on the basis of the promises that we, that we made to them. Uh, and do, do people feel that we have let them down terribly?
5: Yeah, I think they feel absolutely let down. Um, a lot of the news organisations, the Times amongst them, if I recall, and the Guardian, Sky, ITN, did approach the government saying, you know, there has to be a special visa programme to allow all the people that have helped us over the years, that has, have got in, uh, have helped us... Uh, translate and to also produce and to fix for us in very, very testing uh, circumstances uh, to be included into the sort of evacuation program and to go alongside um, the people who had worked uh, for the British military and for the government and for the rest of the coalition forces. Um, We we were successful, as were the others, in getting uh, some, if not all of them out. But we're talking very, very small numbers, relatively speaking. I think the British government had underestimated the sheer volume, the sheer numbers of people that they actually had a responsibility uh, to. And it's not just those who had worked for them, but it's also their immediate families, Mm. Um, because, as as Lynn is saying, people are being targeted. Whatever the Taliban said at the beginning, and there were some, uh, frankly, nonsensical uh, remarks made by politicians around the world and military commanders that perhaps the Taliban were going to be reasonable as sort of a Taliban 2.0. Well, I never thought that was going to be the case. And much more importantly, nor did the people who worked uh, for us and with us and many of those who worked uh, for the coalition uh, forces and the government. And so that's exactly what we're hearing is happening now. We know from our friends there that, um, you know, life is very difficult. The women's issue is a massive one. I mean, this is something that I think a lot of people miss out on. We knew that the Taliban were going to be difficult to win for, for women, but I 'm not sure that people actually realize just how fundamentally uh, life has changed for them. We, you know We know about the education, we know about the control on the jobs, but it's dangerous as well. Um, and you add that uh, to the insecurity, the effect of the famine all made worse by by the weather the fact that um, obviously billions of 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 dollars of aid aren't being released to the Taliban they're going to have there has to be some type of coordinated negotiation with the Taliban so that some assistance for the aid agencies in particular but overseen probably by the United Nations can get into the country because we are looking at an absolute Mm -hmm. disaster there but to go back to the central point yes huge numbers of people feel incredibly let down and being there uh, just outside the airport watching these tens of thousands of people pleading to get on board planes terrible pictures we saw of people getting onto them and falling off from the outside all of those things and then ultimately standing in sewage ditches trying to get across the sewage ditch to the to the soldiers and then of course in that very same ditch a suicide bomber killed an awful lot of people who had just been there for days trying and pleading many with legitimate uh, paperwork and passports that gave them the right to get in. But because of the chaos, they simply couldn't get protest, uh, processed. And I think that was something, well, I'll never forget it. It was, it was genuinely horrendous. I
2: mean, Stuart, you, you say you have been reporting from Afghanistan since nine uh, eleven, And of course, you know, it may have begun to seem inevitable that the Taliban were going to take over at some point. But in those 20 years uh, that British troops were in, in, in the country, there was a point where it was unthinkable that the, the Taliban would return, that all of this would be for nothing. I mean, I, I reported from Afghanistan in, in, in 2012. And the idea that then uh, the, 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 the country would be going back, uh, it really was unthinkable, wasn't it?
5: It, it was unthinkable uh, if the circumstances changed, remained the same. Because yeah. um, Donald Trump basically said the Taliban had won and, and did a deal so that his troops weren't attacked. And he gave them a date. Uh, by which he would leave. Joe Biden brought that date uh, forward. And, and, and so uh, if you combine that with the mentors, that's the, basically the advisors, both British and American and, and other countries who were there, who helped uh, the Taliban, uh, sorry, helped the Afghan army. And then much more importantly, the technical support staff that kept helicopters and, and planes in the air were effectively withdrawn as well. So you had this large army, very well equipped, but slowly but surely was losing command and control structures and also the wherewithal for their for their helicopters, which pretty much can secure anywhere against the Taliban, um, suddenly stopped flying. So it all just got worse. And as a result, all of those conditions changed so fundamentally that it, it, it almost became inevitable that the Taliban would take over and as we say this had been growing for a while it wasn't like this came as a complete surprise although sometimes you do seem to think that particularly the British did come as a complete surprise but the indicators have been there for a while we're not talking days we're talking months and months and months. That's all we've got
2: time for on the Red Box podcast thank you for listening Matt will resume normal service tomorrow.